Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. This is a quick edit, the date Monday 21st November. I put a script to bed during Transgender Awareness Week. My original intent was to highlight two points. First, that trans people have existed forever, as opposed to that garbage far-right take that we're an invention of postmodernists or cultural Marxists or whoever else they want to blame. Um, and second, that visibility matters. Now this episode was not meant to be the be-all and end-all. It's just the first part in an ongoing series I'll return to every late November as Transgender Awareness Week rolls around. The senseless murder of LGBTQ plus people in a gay bar in Colorado Springs over the weekend, well, it made me rethink the scope of this subject. Did I need to write something more strident, more defiant? But the more I thought about it, the very act of LGBTQ plus people, even deigning to exist, was enough to set a miserable, insecure sociopath off, to tragic effect. So if this radical act of existing so offends some people, well maybe then this is enough. I do want to offer my deepest condolences to the people who lost loved ones, and to those injured in this deplorable attack. Today I'd like to start the episode with a poem. Father in heaven, who did miracles for our ancestors with fire and water, you changed the fire of Chaldees so it would not burn hot. You changed Dina in the womb of her mother to a girl. You changed the staff to a snake before a million eyes. You changed Moses' hand to leprous white and the sea to dry land. In the desert you turn rock to water, hard flint to a fountain. Who would then turn me from a man to a woman, were I only to have merited this, being so graced by your goodness? Thus wrote Colonimus ben Colonimus in Evan Bokan, 1322. Colonimus ben Colonimus was born to a well-to-do Jewish family in Arles, France, in 1286. They, and I should say up front, as far as we know, Colonimus only ever presented as male to others. But given their poem, I don't think it terribly disrespectful uh, to use a gender-neutral pronoun. So they it is. Colonimus became a scholar, receiving an extensive education in theology and philosophy. Colonimus distinguished himself as a translator of many of the classical Greek and Roman works that were brought to Europe during the Crusades. Their one true love, however, was satirical poetry. When it came to writing angry invectives on society, Colonimus was said to be quite the pistol. Ivan Bokan is apparently an angry invective, raging against the comparatively easy life Jewish girls had compared to the boys. Girls got to be the homemakers, they got to play games. Boys only buried themselves dutifully in dusty old books. At least till they were old enough to go to work. They were burdened with all the responsibility, apparently, 
Quoth Colonymus, Woe to him who has male sons. Upon them a heavy yoke has been placed. Restrictions and constraints. But it doesn't quite read that way to me. When you take tone into account, there is a genuine mood of sadness and resignation. Colonymus writes on, begging God to transform them into a woman before stating, If my Father in heaven has decreed upon me, and has marred me with such an immutable deformity, then I do not wish to remove it. Now we don't know enough about the satirists to offer any diagnosis of them. And if we did, I'm certainly not the one to do it, I'm no psychologist. But the work is interesting, as whether it represented Colonymus's feelings or not, it is certainly a representation of gender dysphoria. For centuries, this feeling of, to use Colonymus's words, feeling maimed and deformed, is something millions of people have felt. Now, not all trans people feel gender dysphoria, but many do. It's worth knowing the UCLA think tank, the Williams Institute, estimates 0.6% of the population is transgender. Extrapolated over human history, this means many millions of trans people. Many have felt Colonymus's discomfort, and many have begged to their God to change them too. Colonymus, it appears, sees his condition as immutable, unchanging, unlike many today who have healthcare options. Colonymus may feel powerless to the whims of a malevolent god they have been taught to love and worship. Can I understand why such a figure might turn their depression outwards? into writing angry invectives at society. Well, yes, we see people like him still in this day and age. So presuming that Colonymus Ben Colonymus was who they appeared to be, did they have role models? Should they go look for them, someone who could have guided them to something that would have made them more happy? Well, the short answer is yes. We're going to take a quick look today at a few of those people. Much of their information has been lost to the whims of history, but yes, they existed. For one, let's discuss Eleanor Reichenau. Now, we really don't know enough about Eleanor, but thanks to a set of court documents preserved on a vellum scroll in London in 1395, we know she existed and get some little sense of her life. On Sunday, 6th of December, 1394, Eleanor was arrested by two officers while laying with a man at an address in Cheapside. That part of town was well known for prostitution as reflected in the names of the streets. Quick trigger warning, I'm going to say a couple of naughty words. If that's at all likely to offend, skip forward about 30 seconds, you'll miss it all. She was arrested on Soper Lane, a Soper, now an antiquated slur for a homosexual man. And this was not terribly far from Gropecunt Lane, a street name often used when brothels were nearby. This is replicated in towns across England, wherever there were brothels until the 16th century. Eleanor and the gentleman, one John Britby, a former church chaplain, were brought in and questioned before the Lord Mayor of London. From Eleanor's testimony, we discover she was assigned male at birth, and upon moving to the city had as much as one could in that time, transitioned. 
She took up work as a barmaid and a seamstress before turning to prostitution. For a while, Eleanor moved to Oxford and worked in a pub there. We don't know why she returned to Cheapside, but we do know as a sex worker, she made far better money than she would have doing bar work. Eleanor returned to her pimp, a woman named Elizabeth Browderer. Now we don't really know anything about Eleanor's life outside of work, her hopes and her dreams. But we do know from her confession that in her work life she had a large clientele who included many men and women, included three knights of the realm, both male and female clergy. She made good money from sex work and however one feels about sex work, it afforded her an authentic life Colonymous only could have dreamt of. The Lord Mayor of London himself carried out the interrogation, apparently to appear a tough-on-crime mayor. They were having problems with Lollards at the time, a um, new sect of Christianity, and he really didn't want to seem a pushover to those people. However, there is no evidence Eleanor was ever found guilty of or sentenced for anything. Beyond this brief insight, we lose track of her completely. Individual characters in this time are often footnotes when they do appear. The remarkable, and for this tale's sake I should point out cisgender, Marjorie Kemp had yet to drop her groundbreaking autobiography, although she was alive at the same time as Eleanor. Telling one's own truth before Marjorie was really not a thing people did. If you made it into a history book, typically you were some well-off aristocrat, a general or perhaps a merchant with tales of faraway lands. Types later coined the great men of history. As such, many early tales of trans people are often archaeological in nature. Take for example a 5,000-year-old trans skeleton dug up in Prague, Czech Republic. The bones show the effects of male levels of testosterone, the accoutrements code female. A 10th century AD Viking grave in Birka, Sweden, contained a possibly female-to-male warrior, buried with his weapons and all manner of masculine items. Iron Age burial plots in Hassanlu, Iran, show evidence the people of that time observed a third gender, considered neither male nor female. In Aboriginal cultures from Africa to the Americas, to the Pacific, to Asia, many people were on early contact with Europeans, noted to be trans or non-binary. All too often this was unremarkable to those peoples themselves. It was just the way people were, the way they've always been. Trans people are there, but they slip through the cracks of history far too often. But sometimes a movement or even an emperor come along, and they are far harder to ignore. The polytheistic religions of the Near East allowed a space where trans people could be themselves and play a role in society. The Gala, Mesopotamian priests from the third millennium BC, were still considered nominally male by their society, but presented freely as women. They wore women's clothing and spoke and sang in a dialect reserved only for women. Ivagali, a Phrygian cult from modern-day Turkey, were not a continuation of Agala, while Agala was certainly a template for them. 
The Gali worshipped Sibeli, the mother of the Phrygian gods. They lived as women and were castrated on joining the sect, apparently as Sibeli's consort Attis had originally done. One of the central icons of the religion was a black meteorite, kept in a temple in Phrygia. The Romans looted this meteorite while away fighting against Carthage in the Second Punic War. In 204 BC, the meteorite, a statue of Sibeli, and a number of galley priests were brought back to Rome. Sibeli was quickly taken in to the pantheon of Roman gods. Rome even added a national holiday for the deity, between April 4th and 10th, where the statue was paraded through the streets, flanked by galley. A number of Romans, their gender expression forced underground by the stifling Roman culture, found a level of utility in this new religion and became galli. As with right-wing reactionaries in our time, the ascension of the galli was met with a moral panic fed by conservative fury. These people with their strange ways were turning the world all topsy-turvy, apparently. They were corrupting the youth. They were a whole other order of terrible if you were to take the satirist Juvenal seriously. His second and fourth satires were particularly unkind to the galli. All the same, the galli remained out and proud until Rome adopted Christianity. In the Council of Nicaea, May to August, 325 AD, a meeting that set out many of the ground rules of Western Christianity, the first cab off the ranks was a prohibition on self-castration among the clergy. Speaking of Rome, Varius Avatus Bassianus is someone we should discuss. Born in Emesa, now Homs in Syria, a 14-year-old Varius was promoted from high priest of a temple to Emperor of Rome in 218 AD. Renamed Elagabalus after her god Elagabal, a variation of the god Baal. While her reign wasn't terribly long or distinguished, rather than invading the neighbors, Elagabalus spent most of her time throwing extravagant hedonistic parties. At least one of these parties turned deadly when a false ceiling fell away deliberately dropping millions of rosebuds on the diners. Legend has it so many rosebuds fell on the diners, the people suffocated. Elagabalus executed generals and tried to enforce the worship of Elagabal as a state religion. She may have bigamously married a Greek athlete named Zotikus and a charioteer named Hierocles, all the while visiting bars and picking up random men. Now some of this may well be propaganda to excuse her assassination at the hands of her own guards just four years into her reign. What is certain, however, Elagabalus wore women's clothing, wigs, and makeup, insisted on being addressed, milady, and approached several Roman surgeons with promises of ample reward. They could just develop a genital reassignment surgery for her. Elagabalus was a terrible person, not an ideal avatar for trans people everywhere. But as emperor, she was probably the most high-profile trans person in the ancient world. While we're in the ancient world, I have one final subject I'd like to discuss. It's a figure we've met before, never really discussed fully. 
You may recall Hypsocrataea as Mephrodites of Pontus's lover at the very end of his life. The Sumerian warrior princess fought alongside the emperor, escaping across the Caucasus with him to the Crimea. Rumours circulated on the emperor's passing, the Sumerian warrior princess had adopted the masculine name Hypsocrates and lived the rest of his life as a man. In 2004, in the Black Sea city of Phanagoria, an epitaph was uncovered to a Hypsocrates, former wife of Mephrodates. There was once a statue of a warrior above it, but the statue was long gone by then. Now this is intriguing, we know Mephrodates' Hypsocrataea was said to have been stereotypically masculine in appearance and in behaviour. Mephrodates himself called her Hypsocrates. Hypsocrates was among the slaves brought back from Pontus by the victorious Romans. This same Hypsocrates served Julius Caesar no less, until freed by Caesar 16 years after Mithridates' death in 47 BC. After this, we're not entirely sure what happened to him, but some scholars believe he later became a well-regarded military historian of the Near East quoted by later writers like Josephus, but whose works have all been lost to the ravages of time. Never know, could be another Hypsocrates. But the tale makes for a tantalizing what-if, leaves us more questions than answers. They are one and the same. Was Hypsocrates or Hypsocrataea assigned male or female at birth? And if so, did the change reflect a transitioning or a detransitioning? Were they essentially non-binary? Sadly, we'll never know the specifics. But in the abstract, isn't it good to know that he, she, or they existed? Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination. <laughs>